0: Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church um, up through third grade. And uh, while they go, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, in all we do, we honor you. And Lord, may that be true, not simply of the gathered church, but all the individual Christians who make up the gathered church. May we, in our lives, in the roles in which you've called us, honor you and show your greatness. And Lord, now as we turn to uh, yet more plagues, more judgment, uh, Lord Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes and our hearts to see and to understand. Lord, would you make my words conform to your intentions in this, um, this passage and the, these, wor- these words that you've recorded for us. And uh, Lord, show us your glory, we pray. In Christ's name I ask. Amen. So it occurred to me, probably a good idea to refresh our memory of what the book of Exodus is about. Um, uh, we've been so buried deep in the, in the plagues that you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture because it's, it's a pretty intense part going on. So um, if I understand correctly, I, I think the book of Exodus is about God and us. And I say that because I, the book of Genesis is about who God is and who we are. So that's why the book of Genesis is laid out the way it is. There's, there's a big chunk of it dedicated to Joseph, um, and why Joseph, because he doesn't come up very much. Well, he's explaining how Israel got into Egypt. You're not slaves, and so that's true of us. We're not slaves, and so when we want to resort to slave mentality, we need to be reminded that we are not slaves. We've been set free in Christ, and then the way the book begins, the book of Genesis begins, is it's all about who God is and what God's doing, um, and if you remember, I've said this a number of times. I'm, you're going to get tired of it, but that's okay, um, when Israel goes into the promised land, there will be people there who worship other gods. And it's really important for them to know that when they get there, their god is not like those gods. So there is Ashtoreth, the god of the uh, fertility, the goddess of the harvest. Well, remember Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be, and there was. He made a harvest. Why? Because he wanted to. He doesn't need Ashtera. And, and they'll run into gods of the hills. Why are there hills? Because God parted the water and made land appear. That's why. Our God is the God over heavens and earth. And so the book of Genesis is defining for us who God is and who we are. So when we get to the book of Exodus, it's kind of like Moses' next part in his sermon is now let's apply that. This is, who God, th- this is God and us together as he's beginning to work on us. He, he took us into, into Egypt, and now he's going to lead us out. And so the outline, as I've perceived it anyway in the book of Exodus, is really three phases. The first one is God delivers us. And that is the Exodus. That is these these judgments that we're going through now up to the Passover and the Red Sea, and then they go out. I don't know exactly where, somewhere between the Red Sea and, and Mount Sinai, they transitions to God rules over us because God will start giving rules and laws and establishing those kind of things. So at Mount Sinai, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. God delivers us. He rules over us. And then the last part of the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. It is elaborate descriptions of how the tabernacle will be built, of it being built, and the fact that it was built, and then its dedication. And so that final part is God with us. So God delivers us. That's the Exodus. God rules us. He gives us rules for life. He doesn't just... Let us go and we go wild on ourselves. But the most important part is the final, God with us. And so it's helpful to remember that outline because where we're at with the plagues, we can kind of get lost in the details and and the history and the minutia of it all and forget that this is not only judgment on Egypt and her gods. It is at least that. But the reason that there is judgment on Israel and her gods is because God is delivering his people. So there's there's the judgment, but there's also deliverance. That's the dual purpose of all of these plagues. And, and, and you can get lost in the details of it and forget it's not just judgment here. It's also deliverance. And so I think that, that kind of helps remind us of how to read these. Now, you remember from the previous weeks, the, the plagues come in groups of three. There's three groups of three plagues and then the Passover. It's really, you know, we talk about ten plagues, but it's really three groups of three. The literary structure that Moses used to tell the stories is identical in all three groups of three. And so the uh, preaching style will be the same in all three groups of three. (laughs) Um, I'm just going to follow the same format. I like creativity. The first plague has got the most detail. We'll take a whole sermon on that. The next two kind of are shorter. We'll clump them together, and then we'll look at all three together because there there is that structure where they're lumped together. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning is we'll look at the next two plagues, and then at the end, we'll back up and we'll say, okay, what are these three plagues together telling us about judgment and deliverance? So this is, this is the next one. The Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let's make no mistake who is speaking to you, Pharaoh. This is Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. That's who's speaking to you. And he's demanding, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse, the hand of the Lord will, will fall with a very severe plague. The hand of the Lord will fall. Do you remember last time God's appendage was mentioned in the plagues? When the magicians couldn't duplicate the gnats, the flying insects, they reported to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And that was just flies. That was just flying things. Now Moses is using kind of a literary tool here to remind us, now it's the hand of the Lord is following on them. And and it says that it's with a, a severe plague. Actually, the word is heavy. A heavy scourge, a heavy plague is going to fall on them. So imagine the hand of the Lord descending on them very hard. And here's what's going to happen. A very severe plague will descend on your livestock in the field. The horses, the donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks, everything. Um, Everything, the Lord is going to bring a severe plague on them. Uh, Just one little historical note. Uh, Some of the critical scholars say, well, they didn't domesticate uh, camels until the 11th century B.C., so this is obviously uh, written later. It's, it's obviously wrong. And by the way, you know, Abraham had camels and, and that can't be right. And Well, yeah, if you want to start with that presupposition or you could look at that and go, wait, look, he, we have historical evidence that they domesticated camels earlier. Um, and by the way, they're finding evidence that, yeah, they domesticated camels earlier. So it kind of fits in. Um, the other place that you see that, and, and this will kind of come up a little bit later in the sermon, is the book of Job. Um, Job was considered to be a contemporary of Abraham. And it's possible that the book of Job was the first of the written Hebrew scriptures. It it may be that. And what did Job lose as Satan was attacking him? 4,000 camels or whatever that number was. I can't remember it off the top of my head. He lost camels. Well, yeah, so because they had camels back then. So um, the camels being mentioned among these other livestock, that's that's really not a problem historically. Um, What's To be noted, though, is that it is the livestock uh, of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. There's there's a distinction that God makes. So last week we said that the, uh, the plague fell on everywhere except for the land of Goshen. God made a distinction there. God's continuing to make a distinction. This plague is going to hit everybody, all the livestock, except the livestock that belongs to Israel. So this is even more specific than the land of Goshen, which could have non-Israelites living in it with them. Now it's specifically, these animals will be spared. That's exactly what's going to happen. And then it says the Lord will set a time. Now, do you remember with the frogs, Pharaoh called Moses in and said, dude, make the frogs go away. And, and Moses, with all deference and, and respect, said, I'm going to give you the honor of telling me when to let the frogs go away. You, you name the day. And for some reason, Pharaoh, instead of saying now, said, um, tomorrow, do it tomorrow. And Moses said, it will be done. And it happened. Pharaoh doesn't get a choice this time. There's no option. This is when it's going to happen. It's going to happen tomorrow. So if you come up with some naturalistic explanation for why only the livestock of the Egyptians died, which you're going to really have to stretch to make sure that you exclude the Israelites, uh, you've also got to come up with a naturalistic explanation for why it happened exactly when he said it would happen. uh, Because... Moses was many things. He was not an advanced biologist who could diagnose the, uh, the pattern of, of infestation or something. So this is miraculous. There's just no way around it. And so what happens, is it says the next, the next day, this thing happened. It occurred, just like the Lord had said, all the livestock of Egypt died. Um, does that mean all the livestock of Egypt died? Well, yeah, but it depends on what you mean by all the livestock. It all always means all but you have to define the all. Because what's going to happen is in the next plague, there's going to be boils that fall on the livestock. Well, I thought all the livestock were dead. And then further down, the hail is going to destroy all the livestock. And they're going to die. And then when we get to the Passover, all the livestock, the firstborn, is going to die. So all can't mean all in this case. It must mean all. Yeah. Well, go back and look at what God said. He said, all the livestock that are in the field... So anything that was out in pasture, out in the open field, that was where the plague was going to fall. If they were sheltered, if they were in, um, in the, the, um, um, the shelters, if they were in the houses, if they were somewhere not out in the field, in the corrals or something, then they wouldn't die. So all always means all, but you have to define the, the parameters there. So all of the, the livestock that were out in the field died, but don't miss the point, none of the Israeli ones died. None of the livestock belonging to the Israelites were killed. So that is just incredible that God would be this specific and that he would name it uh, exactly that way. What's Pharaoh's response? Well, Pharaoh says, all right, well, Moses came and said this was going to happen. You guys go out and check. Go, go survey and let me know what's going on. So one of the theories is what, there's no way that they could have surveyed the entire land of Goshen and checked everything because you know there just wouldn't have enough time. Yeah, baloney. You know what they had? They had taskmasters over top of them, didn't they? They could just go out and survey the taskmasters. Hey, what's going on with the Israelites? There were military outposts there. So it wasn't like there were three guys going out and checking every stall. Um, It's entirely possible that Pharaoh could get an answer back in a couple of days, just go out and ask. But can you imagine from the perspective of the people he sent, as they're leaving Ramses or wherever his capital city was, they're seeing just dead animals everywhere. And then they get into the land of Goshen, into the, the Israelites' camps, and they hear all the moos and the baas and the, everything going on. And they're like, wow, that's stark difference. God seems to have done something there. There's a, there's a mighty difference that happened as soon as we entered this territory. And then it says again, then Pharaoh, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Again, the man will not budge. Um, uh, how many miracles is he going to have to see before he actually moves his heart is hardened so the next miracle comes up that he doesn't move after that the next one the lord said to Moses take a handful of soot from the kiln so it says handfuls of soot soot. it's actually um, fullness of handfuls in in the Hebrew so one one commentator said it probably was cupped hands full of soot and uh, take it from the kiln so why soot why kiln why that kind of stuff there's no God of the kiln. There's no God of soot. There's none of that stuff going on. So what's, what's the purpose of this? I, I can't make a really strong connection between the kilns and what God's doing. One, a few commentators said, well, they would put the bricks that they made into these kilns and fire them. And, and that's a possibility. But as, as I recall, they found that in Egypt, since it's desert, you could just lay the bricks out and let them sun dry. You didn't have to fire a kiln. And Moses doesn't draw our attention to a kiln there, does he? As a matter of fact, I checked. There's no place in the Bible that refers to this event and says, you know, they, they put the straw and the bricks and then threw them in the kiln. There's just nothing there. So I'm not sure if that's the connection we should make. I think here's the connection that we should make is when you get the, the soot out of the kiln, it's a super, super fine dust because a kiln's not like a fireplace where you chuck a couple of logs in there. It's built to draw in air from the bottom and superheat that stuff as it burns so that whatever goes into the can will melt or will harden like a a pottery or you might melt uh, steel or metal in there. Um, It's intended to be very intense fire so the, the remaining ash is burned up and burned up even more and finally burned up so you get this really super fine, dark stuff that's left over, the soot. And so Moses is to take these scoops and go before Pharaoh and throw them in the air. And so he throws them in the air, and it says that they become dust over the entire land of Egypt. Okay, first of all, soot turns into dust. There's a miracle. And then a handful or two or three or four turns into dust that covers the entire land of Egypt. There's another miracle. So look at it from Pharaoh's perspective. He sees... Moses walks up with this dust in his hand and throws it in the air. And you can just see the blackness of the soot beginning to spread through the the air. And then the air carries it, and it just keeps multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. I think it's a very graphic image of what God is doing here. It's it's not a small thing. It starts with Moses because I told Moses to do it, but it's going to spread. And it's going to continue to grow until my purpose is accomplished. And so he throws it, and it becomes a, a fine dust over all the land of Egypt Um, Real quick, not the dust of the earth. Remember with the gnats, he he struck the dust of the earth and the gnats came up. Uh, This is not the dust of the earth, this is just a fine dust in the air. So don't look for, uh, just because I said it, don't look for um, keywords or or hidden codes. And every time you see dust, it must mean this. It, It doesn't work that way. This dust instead, as it falls down and it hits people, it turns into boils. And it says boils then becomes sores. So it might be a boil welts up on the skin and bursts, and it leaves a nasty sore. It's a horrible thing. Whatever it is, whatever caused it, it um, whatever um, um, microbiology is happening that caused their skin to erupt, this was a horrible thing. It breaks out on, on sores on man and beast. So remember, all the, um, all the livestock of Egypt died? Yeah, well, the ones that remained aren't too happy either. So that this dust has fallen on all of them. It doesn't say explicitly that Israel was exempted, but you can really, I think, fairly clearly infer it, or infer it because it says that it broke out on everybody in Egypt, all the Egyptians. So if we're following this pattern kind of thing, that means that that dust didn't fall on the Israelites. They didn't get the boils. Now, what happens with this one is Pharaoh's only mention is that he got to watch Moses throw the dust in the air, throw the soot into the air, that's it. The response comes from the magicians. Now, if you remember with the magicians, with the gnats, they couldn't duplicate it, and they said it's the finger of God, and they just, I said, man, we're done with them. They're gone. We won't hear from them again. We don't hear from them. We see them, and what it says is they could not stand before Moses. They, they, it's not just they couldn't duplicate this it was not just, they couldn't stop it. It means they are utterly decimated before Moses. They can't stand before him. The way that phrase can't, could not stand is used, and I, I checked, it's the exact same phrase used in a couple of places. When the temple is dedicated, when, when Solomon dedicates the temple and the glory of the Lord comes and it fills it with smoke, it says that the priests could not stand in the temple. The, the majesty, the power the presence overwhelmed them, and so they had to get out of the temple because it was too much. Then there's a, a tale of King Jehu is, is, um, sends word out to Samaria, and he, he tells them what to do, and the response is the, the people of Samaria said, two kings could not stand before the hymn. These two kings couldn't stand before Jehu, so we should do what he says. So that idea of could not stand is not the boils were so bad that they couldn't stand up. Uh, may have been. Who knows? But the way it's used biblically, this could not stand, is they are destroyed before Moses. They have nothing to say. They have no options. All they can do is look at Moses and go, you win. They cannot stand before Moses. And so that's what happened to them. They can't stand. The magicians couldn't stand. And it's the magicians. It's not Pharaoh. Um, that'll become important later when we back up and put this all back together. Um, And then the last thing it says, because of the boils, for the boils came upon magicians and upon all Egyptians. So that's why I think Israel is excluded from that. Now, this time, Pharaoh's response is, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This is the first time it says specifically that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The other times it was passive. It was just his heart was hardened. There's one time it says that he hardened his heart, but now the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the way I've been understanding this is in doing these miracles in front of this rank unbeliever, it's not drawing Pharaoh closer to himself. It is making him more resolute. I am a God. I rule Egypt. You have no authority here. And he keeps doing these miracle after miracle after miracle. And it just makes Pharaoh more resolute to affirm himself. I don't back down. I back down before no one. Well, he will eventually, won't he? But it's it's the Lord is working here and Pharaoh just keeps hardening his heart. It's not like God has grabbed Pharaoh's hands and is moving him like a marionette and poor Pharaoh's going, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. It's nothing like that. It is this man has already fastened his heart, headed his, his heart in a certain direction. And now the Lord's just like, I'm gonna continue to do what I'm doing and it's gonna make you harder and harder and harder. That's That's it. So let's back up now and put all these together. What's going on? Now, remember I said at the beginning that this is not just judgment on Egypt and her gods. It is at least that. It is, it is no less than that. But it is judgment on them in order to deliver God's people. So God, and the first miracle, the, uh, the um, I'm drawing a blank. What was that first one? The, uh, oh yeah, the swarms. Whew. How could I forget swarms, man? It's such a cool word. The swarms, God made a distinction between Egypt and the land of Goshen in order to deliver his people now God makes a distinction between the livestock and Their livestock the livestock of Egypt the livestock of of them And then in the last one he makes a distinction between the Egyptians and apparently inferred The Israelites and and spares them. So what's going on? What's happening here? Well, let's start at the back and work or start at the end the sixth one yeah, the sixth one and work our way back so um, with the boils, um, who is the one that's called out, the, the, the person that's called out to stand before uh, Moses and, and be shown that they've been defeated? It's the magicians. And remember when the magicians did the first couple of miracles, they followed right along, right? The, he Moses throws down his staff, and they throw down their staffs, and they all turn into snakes. Hey, we can do that. And when they turn the, the river Nile to blood, the magicians show up and go, yeah, we can do that too. And then when they call the frogs out, yep, we can make more frogs. At the time, I asked the question, well, how did they do that? You know, in our, in our modernist mindset, in the world in which we live, we would go, that was all just, you know, sleight of hand, right? They had some magical powder up their sleeve and went, oh, look, it turned to blood. Um, or uh, the snakes were actually, you know, rigged sticks that would hit the ground and break up. You know, we come up with some way because that's what magicians do in our day, right? It's all sleight of hand. They're doing fancy tricks. What I think is going on with these magicians is, is I think in a pre-modern mindset, these guys are actually accomplishing these things. These are magic incantations they can do because it says they did them through their dark arts. So I think what's going on is is these men are using demonic powers to accomplish these things. Now, what we said in the book of Acts is that upper tier, that supernatural layer. In Hollywood, that thing is is unbridled, man. The demons do whatever they want. In the Bible, Jesus has defeated them, and they are on God's leash. And so God will say, well, you can do that one, and you can do this one. You're not going to be able to do that. Now you can't do this either, and you can't do that. So God rules over that. So these these magicians are representing those demonic powers. And where do I get that idea from? Well, there's a couple of places in the Bible that says the pagans worshipped demons. First Corinthians 10:20. Uh, I no, I imply what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So Paul is talking to the Corinthians, he's looking at the pagan temples, and he says what they're doing there is not offering sacrifices to alternative gods. There are no alternative gods. They're offering sacrifices to demons. So these gods parade, these demons parade themselves as gods. They, they use these miraculous powers. Um, Deuteronomy 32, 17, when... Um, Moses is talking about Israel. He said, they sacrificed to demons that are no gods, to gods that they had never known, to new gods that came recently, whom their fathers had dreaded, or had never dreaded, I'm sorry. So he's, he's looking at the way the Israelites began to drift from the true and living God, and they didn't do drift to other alternative gods, they drifted to demons, is what he says. And then finally, Psalm 106, 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the god Moloch in the land of Canaan, is what they did. And what what the Bible consistently tells us is there are no alternative gods, there are demons. So the first thing that we see when God is working to deliver his people, this, this most recent plague, is an utter defeat of demonic powers. And not only an utter defeat, an embarrassment of them. They can't say a thing. They stand before Moses and they are lost. They have nothing they can offer. They are so utterly defeated. The demonic powers are removed. So as God works to deliver his people, he first demolishes demonic powers. That's, that's what that first one shows. The second one is the, um, why can I never remember these now? <laughs> the death of the livestock. Um, why, why kill the livestock? What was the point of that? What was going on? Well, I think if we look again at the distinction that God makes, he, he kills the livestock of the Egyptians, and he totally spares the livestock of Israel. What would that livestock of Israel be used for? Clothing, milk, curds, meat. But what has God been harping on about in this entire book so far? Pharaoh, let my people go that they may go three days into the wilderness and offer sacrifice to me. So the second thing we see is God now makes a very sharp distinction between what will be offered by Israel and what might be offered by anybody else. These these flocks, these herds that belong to Israel are set aside for sacred use. Not exclusively, there'll be other uses for them too, but this is the group from which offerings will be made. Now, when we go back to the the, um, fourth plague, which was the swarms, I said he excluded the land of Goshen. And the land of Goshen would be a mixed multitude of people, Israelites and Egyptians and, you know, anybody else staying in that area. And God pardoned them. But this one, he goes very specifically, it can only come from Israel. The sacrifices that I will accept will only be made by Israelites. That's the only place they'll come from. Doesn't that sound familiar? What's going to happen later on in the law? Moses is going to tell them the only people that can make that can work in the temple are the Levites, the tribe of Levi. The only people that can offer sacrifices on your hand on your behalf are the children of Aaron. And the only person that can walk into the Holy of Holies and in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle is Aaron's son. Period. And so that's what this one sounds like. He makes a sharp distinction on the very grounds on which they will offer sacrifice. And that sacrifice will atone for sin. Not all sins. It's not the ultimate sacrifice, but it'll atone for this particular sin. And when Aaron goes in behind the curtain and he offers his sacrifice, that will be for all the sins they missed, all the ones they weren't even aware of. And it will come from this flock. That's where it'll start. So now we back up to the third one, the swarms. And you remember last week I said this, the Bible translates it as swarms of flies. Almost all English translations use swarms of flies. It doesn't say flies in the original Hebrew, it just says swarms. And my take is it's probably not flies because the only thing mentioned being damaged is the ground, the land is there and it ruins the ground that they stand on. So it's probably not flies, I don't care, it could be. Maybe it is, maybe they die and they just pollute everything. The point is the word is swarms. And that same word is used later on when, when uh, Israel leaves Egypt. What comes with them is the mixed multitude. and That's the swarms. So now back up to that one, and you, and you see what's going on is Israel is a major portion of who's going to be saved, but there's others in there as well. But it will only be Israel offering the sacrifices. And when it comes down to it, only Israel is is the one that's going to stand. All other fake gods are gone. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the gospel? Because like um, Colossians chapter 2, it talks about Jesus triumphing over all his enemies. He says he disarmed rulers and authority and put them to open shame triumphing over them. So the, the rulers and authorities, the footnote in my ESV says this is probably satanic or spiritual forces. In dying on the cross, in defeating death, and breaking sin, Jesus defeated. Not only did he defeat these foes, he humiliated them. He put them to open shame. The demonic forces cannot stand before Jesus. Isn't that what we just heard in that, that one plague? And, and when we were in the book of Acts, do you remember what they said, what the demons would say? Or not the book of Acts, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of Luke. When we were in Luke, what did the demons say when Jesus showed up? The first thing they yell is, I know who you are. You're the son of God. They couldn't help but announce who he was. And that's what these these priests, the the magicians, acting as this representation of those spiritual forces, they only can confess this is done by the finger of God. That's all they can do because they are utterly defeated. They They can't match these kind of things. So I think the picture that we're getting here is in judgment on Egypt. God is already beginning to paint this picture of how will everybody be saved. The mixed multitude will be saved, not by creating a separate religion, but by joining into the one that I have established in Israel. That's the mixed multitude coming in. But the sacrifice can only come from Israel. It can only come from within Israel. Jesus was the son of Joseph, who was of the tribe of Judah, who was the son of Jacob. That's the only place salvation can come from, is from those people. Jacob's grandfather is Abraham, and Abraham was promised, of your seed the nations will be blessed. And so God is just carrying that picture forward in these plagues. He's saying, look, this is the only place that sacrifice will be made, is within the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel. And so that's the picture he's painting of judgment and deliverance. So don't forget what you're delivered from. We often think, I'm I'm delivered from discomfort. I'm delivered from... Um, addiction to horrible B movies or something like that. No, we are delivered from the wrath of God. He has died to spare us from God's wrath. That's what we're delivered from. And so when we look at the, the plagues falling on Egypt, that's what we're delivered from. And where has Egypt or where has Israel been in all this? What's their major role in all of this? They're just sitting in Goshen. Are they contributing anything to these miracles? Are, are, they, are they, they showing up with Moses and going, yeah, we're in here. We're going to do it too. It all is of grace. Why did God decide to save Israel? Why did he de- decide to deliver them out of Egypt? Because it was his covenant promise to Abraham. What did they contribute? What did they offer? Well, not a whole bunch. They just kind of sat there and kept the sheep. That was, that was their major role. And so doesn't that fit into our modern understanding of what deliverance became in history is what are you contributing to your deliverance? The need to be delivered is about all you can can offer there. And you're called to just wait on the Lord and to trust. And that's the picture that we have. In the midst of judgment comes deliverance. Um, I'm looking forward to the third and final set of plagues. Doesn't that sound terrible? (laughs) I really I can't wait to, to, for the next set of plagues, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see if my theory is gonna hold in that next set. Will we see a similar source of deliverance that he's working on as he's judging Egypt, as he's, he's leveraging all this judgment on them? What's the next part of the gospel we'll learn from the plagues? I never expected to find that. But you know what? God is much bigger than my expectations. He is able to accomplish wonderful things. Um, I think as somebody mentioned to me recently, um, other people write stories in, in paper and stone and stuff. Our God writes his story in history. And so he He orchestrates all of these major things and they fall out because that's what he's planned to do from the very beginning. So as Ramey was reminding us about what our role in the world is. What are we supposed to do? You know, we watch this video about what God's doing in, in Athens. And our question now is, what do we do in Lancaster? Don't forget who you are. And, and don't forget why your mission cannot fail. God is doing this stuff. And, and we're in Goshen and we're going, okay, Lord, what do we do? And we follow where he leads. What are you going to accomplish? What will you do as you deliver us? And can we bring more of that mixed multitude along? That's our heart. We want to bring more of the mixed multitude with us. Lord, have mercy and show us the way. Let's pray. Father, it's your desire. It has been your desire from the beginning to save a people to yourself. And that doesn't mean a a race. It doesn't mean a family. It doesn't mean a clan. It is a group of people of all that you have created. Lord, your desire has been to draw them to yourself and to bring them to yourself. And so, Lord, you... Orchestrated a magnificent deliverance of Israel to draw them out of Egypt. And it just echoes throughout history as you begin, as you continue to work to draw your people out from under bondage, from an under captivity, from slavery to sin, into the liberating grace of Jesus Christ, so that you can rule us, so that you will dwell amongst us. And so, Lord, thank you for, for um, the book of Exodus picturing that so vividly so magnificently. And Lord, I pray that as we read through our Bibles, as we're studying your word, Lord, that we would hear that echo and realize we have a promise we can hold on to because, Lord, you did it 1,400 years before you sent your son to accomplish it. You have been doing it in the 2,000 years since your son has come. You have repeatedly throughout the history of mankind proven yourself faithful. Father, increase our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.